Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the politics podcast that really likes that hat you're wearing. Don't listen to anyone else, they don't know style like we know style. I'm Alexandro. On today's show, it's cruel, it's expensive and it's illegal. The Court of Appeal rules that Suella Braveman's Randa plan is grounded. But the headbangers on the back benches have a plan of their own, clamped down on foreign students and care workers. Is the tiger that the Tories have been riding finally about to eat their face? And it's 75 years since the foundation of the National Health Service, Hippie Bippy NHS. After 13 years in power, government has finally produced a 15-year staffing plan. Only problem, it doesn't include current staff. Plus, in our new featurette, we look at the heroes and villains of the week. Let's meet the panel. Rachel Cunliffe is Senior Associate Editor of the New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Sue Gray is back in the news. (laughs) Even though she has been cleared by the relevant body, ACOBA, the Cabinet Office announced today that she had been found prima facie guilty of breaking the civil service code, which means they accused her of breaking it. She said that her old employer has no locus to be publishing an HR report on her conduct, refused to engage, and that makes her guilty. This story has got and is getting zero traction with voters. Why is it still being pursued? Oh, because they really want it to get traction. Don't they really want to make the Sue Gray scandal happen. Really and it's so boring and it's not going to happen. Um, so the BBC headline for the story reads, Sue Gray broke civil service code over Labour job offer inquiry fines. And you have to get all the way down like to the fifth or sixth paragraph before you read that the inquiry is like an internal cabinet office inquiry. And the person saying this is a, a cabinet minister who's not too excited about the whole Sue Gray going to join Labour. By the way, you, you you said uh, her appointment to, to join Labour has been cleared by ACOBA. You, you know whose appointment hasn't been cleared by ACOBA? Boris Johnson? Yeah. <laughs> his, his, new, his new Daily Mail column. Oh, I top mark, top marks to Alex there. Um, but but yeah, like there's there's no case for her to answer. She she knows that because she understands how the rules work. She's been cleared to join Labour in September. Um, and now the Cabinet Office have gone, well, we still think you did a bad thing, but we can't prove it. Also, um, is it, isn't, isn't it a little bit outrageous, actually, for your former employer... Oh, yeah. To kind of eff- effectively put out what is an internal HR report saying, yeah. we think you broke the rules. We have no proof, but we think you did it. Prima I mean, facie? Prima facie. Facia. It's a word I never see written down. On I the face of it, On the space. It, it means at first glance. It means before <laughs> properly considering <laughs> the evidence. It, it means someone accused you. And when we asked you to defend yourself, you told us to go jump. <laughs> yeah. That's what it That's means what it, what it on means. this particular um, But they, they, there's this weird narrative still going around some circles in Westminster that Sue Gray is the reason Boris Johnson fell. You know, she is the, the architect of the Partygate scandal, whereas actually her report into Partygate let him off quite lightly. Yeah. It wasn't anything to do with her report. Uh, she didn't find him. That was the Metropolitan Police. And anyway, it was the Chris Pincher scandal that was the, the catalyst for him going. So she... she On she, which I hear the report is coming this week. Have you heard similar? Uh, I've heard that that report is coming out uh, imminently, but I've been hearing that for a while. Right, so. right. Um, but yeah, Sue Gray, the, uh, the architect of Boris Johnson's downfall, and uh, she, she doesn't care. Mm. Um, May we all aspire to such zenness about our former employees. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, the story effectively is that 
a working class woman that hasn't been to university was passed over for promotion by a bunch of public school Oxbridge boys. And then she outwitted them by finding a better route to power. And in a year's time, she's going to be their fucking boss. And they are having a massive panic. <laughs> That's the bottom line. And, and, and no one else cares. <laughs> Matt Green is a comedian whose satirical videos come out faster than an Aussie wicket keeper <laughs> seeing the chance to do a terrible but technically permissible thing. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Speaking of cricket, a landmark report was released last week about bigotry in the game. It concluded that private schools and old boys cliques ruled the game. Over 75% of all minority, minorities surveyed have experienced some form of discrimination and that it encourages drinking and a puerile lads culture. Um, smooth brains like Nick Timothy, meanwhile, see no issue. Is there hope? Matt, is this a shock to you, first of all? Well, not really. I mean, I, I have to admit, I was at Lords um, yesterday, Sunday, for the big day where it all, no. yeah, where it all happened. Um, and, uh, and you're it was, saying this now, not as your escape route. I know, I know. Well, it's, it's, called, it's sort of an escape route and sort of a, it was sort of brilliant and sort of terrible, obviously, because we lost in the end. But it was an amazing experience. Definitely the best thing I've seen live in terms of sport. I loved the, the atmosphere was so incredible because... There was this Bairstow thing, and yes, technically he was definitely out, but because we were in the crowd, we were all going, ah, oh, it's cheating, cheating. And it wasn't, to me, it felt like we weren't being kind of nasty. We were just kind of trying to G our team up, and it seemed to really work because yeah, Stokes really Stokes you know, got amazing. going, and it was incredible. On the serious side of things, the people I was surrounded with, I thought, yeah, I, I think everyone here went to public school. I just get that sense. There was a real feeling yeah. of, and that's, that is the cricket crowd. And, I, you know, I love cricket, and I love watching it, but definitely anyone who spent any time within cricket playing it. I've played a very, very, very low level at like village cricket um, when I was a lot younger. Yeah, there are some pretty old-fashioned attitudes out there. And I think that that report just is clearly, there is a clear big problem there. But it, it feels to me that if the people at the top of the game want to change things, that's great. But as always with these things, it's the getting to the grassroots is going to be the difficult bit because there are people at the grassroots of cricket who just know what they like and they like what they know and they're not really going to change stuff. It'd be like trying to reform the Tory party mm. from the ground up and that feels like a tough thing to do. Yeah, on the bright side, they're nearly dead. Gavin Esler is the former host of Newsnight, Chancellor of the University of Kent and author of the upcoming book, Britain is Better Than This, out on September 23rd. Hello, Gavin. Hello. So yes. excited to when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think the title may be more in hope than in fact at the moment. But uh, Britain is better than this. It is a great country. It's unfortunately gone in some very odd directions recently. But well, you, we your book, end, book ending it handsomely with appearances on a podcast called Oh God, What Now? <laughs> <laughs> That's the polite version of the title, I think. You've narrated another film by our friends at Led by Donkeys. Um, this time it was projected on the headquarters of Thames Water, who are teetering on the brink. Rishi Sunak is reluctant about state ownership, but will he be left with any choice? Well, uh, I think... There's no money. That's part of it, isn't it? And even if Labour were in power, they would find it very, very difficult, it seems to me, to uh, go ahead with a, a programme of nationalisation. But I think we need to take a couple of steps back and remind ourselves that for 13 years, we've had the Conservatives in government. And for many of those years, we have had a water regulator called Offwat, which is supposed to be regulating how the water companies work. 
And monopolies do what monopolies do, which is they make as much money as they possibly can. And if they're private monopolies, they give them to the shareholders. And there's, that's the way the system works. Mm. But if you have a regulator and the regula- regulator does not regulate, then you have a serious problem. We lose, I checked the figures this morning, one trillion litres of water a year in England and Wales due to cracked pipes. That's 24% of the water that's supposed to come through to, to us. So we have problems with water. We have hose pipe bans and so on, but we're pissing away 24% of our water and cracked pipes. That is 51 litres a day for every person in England and Wales. So where has the regulator been? Where has the government been in 13 years? And the chances of, I mean, we, we can nationalise it. Of course we can. But that will mean spending more public money in order to break to, to fix a system which has been broken and significantly broken and not repaired while in private hands. It is a real mess. It's absolute disgrace. And the other part of that is I swim quite a lot in the sea. Uh, I have Still? to tell you. Still? <laughs> You're I, not alone I, these I, days. <laughs> I, I am almost alone sometimes, I have to say. Uh, fortunately, the part, part of the beach, according to Surface Against Sewage, who I do trust, uh, that I go to, there's there's about 15 to 20 miles along the beach where I go, which is clean, beach in Kent. But there's a lot of beaches that are not clean. This is an app, another national resource, and we have messed it up. First this week, Suella Braverman's Rwanda deportation scheme, which she wanted in place last spring, is stuck on the tarmac once again. Her dream will have to wait. Off the back of that, the new Conservative caucus, new Conservatives, I mean, kudos for dropping the research group bollocks, um, has come up with its own suggestions. Braverman insists that the British people have had enough and that the system is rigged against them. But on question time last Thursday, not a single person raised their hand in support of sending people to Rwanda. Gavin, this was not a unanimous decision by the Court of Appeal and the dissenting opinion is giving much succour to fans of the scheme. What were the main points? Where did the policy fall down? It fell down, as the court said, or as Lord Lord Chief Justice uh, Lord Burnett said, because Rwanda is not a safe third country. Although there's no risk of removal from Rwanda back to Afghanistan or any of those places, quote, unless and until the deficiencies in its asylum process are corrected, removal of asylum seekers will be unlawful. It was a split decision. The government has complained about it, but the government has complained. I mean, one of the one of the worst things about our democracy is it's a very interesting balance between different um, groups of people and different institutions. And one of those institutions is the court system. Mm. And one of those institutions, the court system, was uh, in uh, on the front page of uh, one of our best-selling newspapers was described as enemies of the people mm. just a few mm. years ago. And the government hasn't quite gone down that route, but is going down the route of saying, oh, it's these judges, they're completely out of touch. They don't know what they're doing. They seem they have given their opinion. And there's all kinds of rumblings about what will go on next. But I think we have to understand that this is not a policy. Rwanda's not a policy. It's a wedge issue. It's just something mm-hmm. to irritate people. It's not att- an attempt to actually solve, solve the problem. The problem. No. It is an attempt to stir up the problem. And just, I happened to be this morning, spent some time with Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, who said, 
people actually don't talk about migration on the doorstep. What they talk about is my schools aren't working, they're not good enough, or there's a bit of crime in the streets, or there's, there's, there, I can't get a, an appointment with the GP. And some politicians say, well, that's because they of all, the, all the migrants. And they divert it. And I think he's right. I mm. absolutely think he's right. So this is, again, not an attempt to solve problems. You wouldn't have immediately sat down a couple of years ago and said, I know what we can do about migration. Let's send people to Rwanda. And yet that is government policy. I seem to recall that one of the banners of Brexit was that we would have British laws interpreted by British courts. Turns out British courts also not very keen on authoritarian populist bullshit. It is is shocking, isn't it? Who could have seen that And we've got, you know, what have we got now? We've got the new Conservatives. We've also got the National Conservatives. And I noticed that somebody I follow on Twitter said that's very interesting because we've got the new cons and the Nazis. Uh, (laughs) And I can't can't imagine what they were thinking when they tweeted that. Um, Obviously, I dissociate myself entirely um, from it. Some opposition figures are of the view that this is precisely what the government actually wanted, a continuing battle with this sort of ill-defined dark force, the blob, the elite, the establishment, Cthulhu, I don't know. Does this actually give a free pass to Sunak for failing to stop the boats as he pledged, which everyone knew he wouldn't? Well, it can be an excuse. But I mean, it is interesting to discuss the whole question of the establishment when you see who is actually in power and how long they've been in power and where they went to school and where they went to university and so on. It's an interesting definition of the establishment. We've had checks and balances in our country, which we've a very flawed and weak system, which depends upon people knowing their limits and resigning when they get it wrong. And that doesn't work anymore. And so Sunak, I suspect, will use this as an excuse and say, I wanted to solve the migration problem, but they wouldn't let me. Just as Boris Johnson says, you know, Mm -hmm. I had a great Brexit idea, but I couldn't get it to to work because they wouldn't let me. They're the government and they have to solve the problems. I'm sure he said no excuses at the time. No excuses. Um, Rachel uh, Suella has even lost the support of Brexit true believer and hard man Steve Baker over her comments on grooming gangs. What does it mean for Braveman if she can't rely on support even from people like him? Well, the key thing about Steve Baker is not just was is he from the same sort of faction of the party as Swella Braveman, but he actually ran her leadership campaign when she put in a bid, oh, as, God, did, as did that. half the Tory party, to replace Boris Johnson. So, yeah, he was he was really on, on, on team Suella. Um, but this is about her comment saying that grooming gangs are specifically because uh, an issue because Pakistani immigrant men don't understand British values, it, and kind of what she said. And yeah, that that's not borne out by the home office's own figures and obviously there have been huge scandals with with grooming gangs and um in places like sort of Rochdale and Telford um but there are issues of sexual violence and and gangs and and gangs exploiting poor vulnerable teenage girls mm. of all ethnicities a lot of white gangs as well it, it's not a specifically racial issue which she turned it into which is again what the home office says now him Steve Baker coming out and, and sort of saying this is kind of important um because he has a high 
immigrant communities in, in his constituency. And it's a good example of the Conservatives not always realising that other people can hear them too. Um, and and they, 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 they speak to their, their base uh, using dog whistle politics, although in this case it wasn't dog whistle politics, it was, you know, billboard politics. And the immigrant communities or the sort of swing voters in, in constituencies look at that and go yeah, I'm not going to vote for you now. And the Conservatives says, no, no, you weren't meant to hear that bit. That bit was the bit that was meant to go to our base. If you look at... That's the dog whistle, more of a bigot horn. <laughs> yes. the, the, the Independent last week uh, went with, was this the day the Tories lost the election? But that could be interpreted in two ways, right? Are the Tories becoming less attractive to voters because they want to do something unlawful and cruel or because they haven't succeeded in doing it. Well, it's it's the worst of both worlds, isn't it? So uh, people who don't like the Tories on the left, Labour, the Lib Dems, don't like them, don't like this policy because it's inhumane, illegal and cruel. But even the people who do like the policy, the people who the policy is kind of aimed at appeasing, now they think the government is incompetent. So you've lost them as well. And I think this has been a real issue for the Conservatives since um, sort of pre-referendum days. This idea that you pick a scapegoat, immigrants, and you say everything that's wrong with our country, the reason, as Gavin was saying, the reason you can't get a doctor's appointment, the reason your child can't afford a home, the reason that you, the jobs have all gone from your area, you know, it's because we immigration is too high we're going to fix it. And then people go, okay, yes, we'll vote for you and you'll fix it. And then if you then don't fix it, they go, hang on, what did we vote for you for? So you are alienating even the group of people who support you because you have made promises, which is the neo, not neoconservatives, new conservatives, it's basically the same <laughs> thing as the new conservative group has, has shown. The cutting migration comes with huge economic costs um, and so governments don't do it and then their voters go, but you said you were going to do it. You said you were going to send all the migrants to Rwanda. We won't vote for you again. So it's it, anyone could have seen this coming, I think, is the, is the takeaway. Matt, um, there are murmurs that leaving the European um, Convention of Human Rights could be one of the Tories' main offerings at the next election is this a failing band just trying to remix its one big hit? Just it so, has that vibe, doesn't it? They're so desperate for another Brexit, <laughs> aren't they? Like It's like the only thing that defines them. They they did it once and they just jones in for more. I just sort of think, what? but what are their slogans going to be next time? Take back more control, you know, get Brexit done again. <laughs> leave means more leaving. That's when we said leave, we didn't include, the, there's a bit of leave that we didn't quite get to. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it, none of them strike me as vote winners. That's what I'm saying. And I, I don't want to kink, I don't want to kink shame, but I feel like they need to cool it on like leaving <laughs> Europe stuff. I feel like they're getting a bit obsessed. I feel like next time they're going to be saying, you know, let's leave Eurovision. Let's, let's leave the European Championships. Let's, you know, leave the continent of Europe. Let's drag ourselves further into the Atlantic. It just feels completely insane. Oh, they'd love that. They'd lo I mean, we, uh, we, they would definitely vote for it. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I just say that I am, Rule 34, 99% sure there are Brexit kink parties. <laughs> well, <laughs> they exist. Well, now I won't be able to sleep. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, good Lord. No one wants their, key, their keys in that <laughs> fruit bowl. Um, if, if that's, you look that's, at, that's swingers. That's not kink. <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at the polling... Immigration is a hot issue, 
but not the top issue for the vast majority of voters. It's behind things like the economy, cost of living, the NHS, by a long way, like mm-hmm. 30%, 20% for those things, and then 5% list immigration as their top priority. But if you look at Tory voters, it sort of shoots up in importance. Have they basically created this insecurity in their own voters that now will be impossible to quell? Yeah, I think so. I think the problem is that, I mean, as, as Kevin said earlier, that, that they've they've blamed an easy target. That's what the right loves to do is find a complex situation and and make a simple but bad solution to it. And that's what's happened with immigration. And I think, yeah, lots of there are there are some people who don't like immigration for sort of racist or xenophobic reasons. But there's, I think, quite a lot who don't like it because they think it's to blame for things for that, it, that it's not. Problems, and, yeah. and, and it's like with the, the National Conservatives, they're saying that they are going to cut immigration in these various different ways. But basically what they're doing is cutting the this sort of the easy bits, as it were, of going, well, if you could stop these people and stop these people. It's like, yeah, but those aren't, they're not the people causing the problems. Like the easiest way to lose weight is chop off your head. It doesn't mean it's... <laughs> <laughs> That's an effective diet <laughs> plan. Such a good yeah. analogy. I'm glad you're not a doctor. <laughs> well, actually, I can now train to be one. Um, very quickly. That's later on. Yeah, you yeah. can do an apprenticeship. Um, Gavin, off the back of uh, all this, the New Conservatives group, which includes luminaries like Lee Anderson, Miriam Cates and Jonathan Gullis, um, has published its backseat driving immigration policy. It targets things like student visas and care workers. Is this the logical extension of the Brexit creed, we don't mind being poorer <laughs> as long as there are, few, there are fewer foreigners? C- can I stop you at the word lo- don't logical? Mind, <laughs> logical is we not... don't mind sitting in our own poop. As mm. long as, you know, it's not someone foreign wiping our bottom. Well, perhaps we can arrange it for some of those uh, people that you <laughs> well, mentioned. Well, all they need they, to do is go swimming. <laughs> just, I know a beach where they could go, <laughs> frankly, and I would help them uh, enter the water rapidly. Um, uh, what, what can one say about this? Uh, it's absolutely Alice in Wonderland. I mean, literally the jam tomorrow, jam yesterday. Everything was better yesterday and it will all be great in 15 years time if we can keep the students out. <laughs> keep the students out. Uh, and we'll train up all these. I know we're going to get onto NHS and so on. We'll train them all up, but it won't be today because we've irritated all the doctors and nurses of today. Mm. We're going to have this new cadre of, of doctors and nurses in the future. It's, it's nonsensical. But again, it is, uh, it is dog whistle politics. It is uh, appealing to certain sections of their base. Uh, and I'm not sure that anybody actually takes it seriously now. I mean, we know that trust in politics has collapsed. Trust in politics collapsed uh, quite, has been collapsing for a number of years. Nobody believes that Brexit is a success, even the people... Nigel Farage doesn't even believe mm. that. So uh, I don't think anyone thinks that the key to a better Britain is not to have so many students coming into <laughs> British universities. And, 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 and paying, paying, pay, paying quite a lot of money. Pay, paying a lot of money. Well, uh, subsidising uh, basically British Brit- students. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, exactly. I, sh- I, I don't need to tell you what yeah. happened to your university. Well, uh, well it's, suddenly it, you lost it's 40%. Ha- it's, of- it's happening to universities, including ours, in the sense that European students are finding it a less attractive place to, to come. Um, but the British universities, if you look at league tables of universities around the world, are one of our great, great successes. And uh, the, that's why people want to come here. So why on earth would we not welcome them? And, and who are, who, you know, care workers, do you seriously 
Serious? Maybe a hundred and forty thousand vacancies. Well, yes. I can I can explain. A, a thousand. Danny Kruger, who is in the Lee Anderson, Miriam Cates kind of cohort, wrote a paper. Uh, with the Demos think tank a couple of years ago on solving the social care crisis and his solution to the fact that social care is chronically underfunded was it would all be okay if women just looked after their elderly relatives like they used to and if women didn't feel like they had to have careers and they felt empowered by the government to give up their jobs to look after H- their has parents. Danny discussed it with his mother <laughs> <laughs> because I, th- I think his mother might have very very strong views about that I should add that Lee Anderson actually did not attend the launch of that group, even though Frit. he was chairing was it. Was he Frit? Because he has, and I quote, some awful sick bug. Lee Anderson was last seen eating cat food on Sunday evening <laughs> on his GB News show. I am not making any of this up, so perhaps there is a lesson to be learned there. I don't know. Um, considering the obviously catastrophic economic consequences... Is it a, a credible plan to influence policy or a leadership prospectus for the bun fight that will follow the next election? Well, I don't think there are a few people within the Conservative Party, and I talked to quite, quite a few, who think that they will have the burdens of power lasting much beyond 2024. <laughs> so I suspect that this latter part of your question is more on the money, which is this is all about, I mean, the new Conservatives, the national Conservatives, the whatever else it is, beginning with N, Conservatives, uh, will undoubtedly uh, cohere around whoever their prospective leaders are. But one of the interesting things about this is, the argument made against proportional representation, or one of the arguments made against it, is, oh, you end up with coalition governments. We have coalitions within our governments mm. because they don't actually like each other very much. They don't agree with each other. So at least if we had some kind of PR system, we might actually have coalition between people who, who in open terms, reach agreement with each other rather than stab each other in the back. Rachel, uh, Labour's Thangham de Bonnet, friend of the podcast... Um, asked whether the Rwanda policy would be reversed if Labour took power, said, and I quote, the list of things I want to undo is so long that it would be crowded for competition. What does that mean? It means we're absolutely not giving the tabloids any news lines. Labour are playing super, super defensive at the moment. You saw it as well with the uh, public order bill and the arrests after the coronation and people saying, come on, Labour, you're, this, this, this law clearly is a sort of breach of civil liberties and human rights and doesn't work on a practical level. You're going to undo it, right? And Labour going, that's not a priority for us. And they just don't want to wind anyone up um, because, you know, as we were saying, the Rwanda policy is popular among a small but significant group of voters who kind of think that this will or have been told by the Conservatives that this will help with some of the economic challenges that they're facing. And the last thing Labour want at the moment is for the the Mail and the Sun and the Express to kind of shift from Rishi's failure to stop the boats to Labour would undo Rwanda plan, which is key to stopping immigration. They're just not going to say anything that would provoke a, a news line. But I think... I mean, the, the strongest argument in, in sort of late, for late Labour against the Rwanda policy is the cost of it, right? Yeah. So it costs it costs sixty to seventy thousand pounds more per migrant to send them to Rwanda and have them processed there than it would to process them here. Like that's a very clear economic even argument. If, even if that involves like a 
two-year stay in a hotel, by the way. I, I had no idea it was that expensive to, to get a flight to, to Rwanda. <laughs> <laughs> Those so, luggage costs really get you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like £9.99 for the actual ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole luggage. And you've got to select your seat. That costs another 20 quid. So. Don't try and buy a sandwich on board. <laughs> Uh, so I think that's what's going on. Labour just doesn't want to say that they're going to reverse it because then that becomes the news story rather than the news story being, look, Rishi Sunak is such a terrible prime minister. Mm. Matt, uh, Sunak is failing on all of his five pledges so far. Um, he needs to punish someone or the buck falls to him. So a reshuffle could be close. If the right wing rump of his back benches are already snapping at him, won't sacking Braveman make things even worse? Yeah, I I was thinking about this and just thinking, I just, I'd love to think that he might at one point do the right thing and finally say, do you know what, this is too much. But I think on this issue, he seems to absolutely not do that. <laughs> like, I can't help thinking that he, he'll probably just end up sacking someone else, blaming them for the situation, then promoting her to like super home secretary or something. <laughs> it, it feels like... Home he... secretary at large. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, Lord, help us. Um, yeah, she'd just pop up in any situation. And she just she's allowed to do anything. She's allowed to say anything on any subject. And because she because for something, she does seem to have this power that, that that is from the right of the party, that whenever she does something that is clearly egregious, they make an, an excuse for it and then just carries on. I, could I chip in there? One of the things that strikes me about Sunak is he's missed his chance. He had one big chance, yeah. which yeah. was with Boris Johnson. Yeah. If he had really said this is totally unacceptable. We cannot have the, the office of the prime minister demeaned in the way it has been with this man. I'm going to be different and put some stick about. Then he would have risen in the estimation of a lot of people just because he wasn't Boris Johnson and was prepared to take a stand. He was utterly pusillanimous about Johnson. And if you're pusillanimous about someone who is out, you're going to be even more cowardly when it comes to someone who is in there and who may be one of your successors or at least likely to be. It's a bit like Trump, Trump. isn't it? The, the, the Republicans with Trump had, had, have had many opportunities to say, this is the line, we're not going to cross yeah. this line. Or, or, we, you know, that's it. He was good then, but he's not good anymore. And they just can't do it. I mean, in the States, it kind of makes a bit more sense because it is far more cultish over there. You feel like, yeah, as you say, Johnson was, he was on the way out. He, he would have been an easy sort of person to kick. And but. she was out. Yeah. Having, she wasn't having, in the cabinet. You yeah. know, having yes. broken the the rules and he brought her back. Mm. Well, Six Gavin days Williamson later, returned three times, I seem to think, or mm. at least returned twice. So, I mean, there is a pattern here. Like which is Judy bad Garland, <laughs> Gavin is, <laughs> there's yeah. always a comeback. But I feel it with Sunak and that he basically seems to be mostly interested in the economics, the finance, the numbers. And so he feels... Maybe it seems to me he feels like he doesn't quite understand some of the other topics and feels like he has to keep people like Suella, Lee Anderson. He and thinks others. Suella Braveman understands, well, understands the, the topics involved with the, the Tory no, version of it. You know. I think there's something in that as well. I think there's also he hasn't had to manage people before. Mm. That's mm. not something that's come up at any point in his career. So, and, and, and he's a very sort of, you know, by the book, textbook kind of oh, guy. I don't know. He has a gardener, a pool boy, <laughs> a nanny. Yeah, but he has... I bet he has his uh, wife to manage them. I was going to say, he has his wife, and then they probably have the household manager who manages the all the others. Yes. That, yeah. um, so I just think that the... The, 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 the what do we do? We've put people in the cabinet and now they're causing us headaches and being inconvenient. I feel like his approach to it is, well, have we asked them very nicely to stop? Mm. 
Next up, a new pick-me-up feature in between all the depressing nonsense, like a shot of grappa in the middle of Catherine Bilbel Singh TED Talk. It's hero and <laughs> villain of the week, where each member of the panel selects a candidate for each, and I get the intoxicating absolute power to choose who is handed the golden statuette and who receives the proverbial golden shower. Rachel, what's your nomination? So my nomination for hero is a woman called Frances Haugen. I'm just going to ask, do either of you know who she is? No, you would know about her, though. She is the Facebook whistleblower. She's the woman who released all the tens of thousands of um, uh, internal Facebook documents that showed... Yes. You and were she, doing a big... Interview thing. with her. Yes. Oh, oh, you've done it. Yes, I interviewed her. I interviewed her last week. So this is mostly about her, but a bit about me promoting my own interview. <laughs> um, but you invited me on this podcast. So yeah, it's yeah. really, it's your fault. Um, but she... We're all silly. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I do, I Don't do, feel bad. I do a lot of interviews and I found her just really, really interesting as an individual because she is somebody who didn't set out to do this. She didn't sort of go into campaigning or politics or advocacy. She was a tech engineer um, who worked at Facebook on their misinformation team and saw how bad it was and saw, hang on, you've gone into a whole load of developing economies and basically bought the right to be the internet with their kind of subsidised free basics internet programme. But you're not investing anything in fact-checking. You've got very unstable regions or, or countries like Myanmar and your product is being used, literally used by the government and is causing genocide, which is what she argues in, in her book. Do you want to do something about it? And Facebook was like... And she stepped up. No, no. Uh, so she, so she, she stepped up and... Who's your villain? My villain? My villain is the US Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All of them. Well, not all of them. All, 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 of, the, all of the justices the who, who last week uh, struck down affirmative action... Uh, the, the the student loans forgiveness program and ruled that uh, it was you know un unconstitutional to have gay rights because it's possible a website designer might at some point be asked to make a wedding website for a gay couple and this website designer not only had she not been asked to make a website for a gay couple she hadn't made any we wedding websites at all mm. it was an entirely fictitious example and uh, they've struck down gay rights so yeah all of the supreme court yeah Fuck those guys. Fuck those Matt. guys. Well, my hero is going to be Ben Stokes because of the way he made me feel for about two hours at Lords. Oh, it was extraordinary. Game uh, for Ben. I know. Not, uh, just absolutely swashbuckling. It was incredible. Um, and my villain would be Elon Musk um, okay. for the Twitter throttling that happened over the weekend. <laughs> Um, which it's unclear for not paying his bill yeah it's not quite clear why it happened I mean he's, he tried to spin it into something about AI scraping or something it, it's very clear but for, basically for someone who has tour tickets to sell and Twitter is your own basically your only platform it really gave me a heart attack it was a real like a day of like well I'm going to have to find a new um, way of promoting things now that's terrifying but my favourite tweet about it came from Matthew Sweet uh, who said Elon Musk is like a Scooby-Doo villain who dresses up as a ghost to scare everyone away from the theme park but forgets that his business is theme parks. <laughs> and that feels very much what, how I felt yeah. about Twitter. It's like, yeah. oh, you don't want people to read Twitter, but that is what Twitter is. It's like a newspaper saying, we'll only sell this to one in five people because we can't afford to print enough copies. Do you want to use this podcast to promote your tour? I, just, I think I just did. Do you want to do it again? Uh, <laughs> sure. buy, buy tickets for Matt's buy tour. Buy tickets to my tour in 2024. If, if there's any politics left by then, I imagine there'll be some. How about you, Gavin? My hero is Sue Gray. 
actually. I think uh, I think very highly of Sue Gray um, for, for all kinds of reasons. One is she knows when to say nothing and let the other side just dig themselves into a huge deep hole, which is what she's done. I think she will be an absolute, well, beyond an adornment to the next government. She'll be brilliant uh, in in helping uh, Labour if, uh, if they're elected. Um, my villain, um, I hadn't thought of the US Supreme Court, but that's a, that, that is a good one. My, my villain is whichever CEO of a water company is in your area <laughs> who's polluting your beaches with somebody's excrement. I think they all deserve something quite serious, perhaps a delivery of, of said excrement to, uh, to their offices. I don't know. Right. My decision, um, I'm going to go with... I am going to go with Sue Gray, actually, just because it will it will trigger all the Tory snowflakes. So she's the hero of the week and villain of the week. I am going to go with the Supreme Court. It seemed to get the the most reaction in the room. <laughs> um, the bad ones, that is. Fuck those guys. Now, this year, the NHS celebrates its 75th birthday. It shares the occasion with some big hitters, including Stephen King, Hillary Clinton, Stevie Nicks and O.J. Simpson. Speaking of people who deny responsibility for things they absolutely did, Rishi Sunak and Health Secretary Steve Barclay unveiled the Tories' 15-year plan for the NHS workforce. Optimistic, given they look like they've got 15 days left. Writing in The Telegraph, Barclay said the NHS had a healthy future. I don't know about you, but if he was responsible for my treatment, I'd start urgent work on my bucket list. The headline statistics are 2.4 billion over five years, or about seven weeks worth of Brexit bus money, drastically increasing the numbers of doctors and nurses and reducing the length of a doctor's training from five years to four. They train too much, those doctors. Also, this government's favourite answer to everything, apprenticeships. Learn, make money and have fun while giving someone a cystoscopy. Matt, the main issue behind current strikes, pay, isn't addressed in this plan at all. Who will train all this new staff? Is is topping up a barrel with lots of holes ever a wise strategy? Well, I think obviously what they're going to do is just get loads of doctors from abroad to then train our doctors. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then we'll send our doctors abroad. That's what's happening now. And then they'll send, they'll train their doctors. And then they'll send, I think it's a perfect system. It's just, uh-huh. there'll be a lot of travel. It's like, a, like a medical exchange program. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's basically happening. And just the whole plan to me, I mean, obviously, if they are able to do these things over a 15 year period, then great, things need to improve. But it felt a bit like saying to someone who's hungry, don't worry, next year we're hiring some keen trainees to teach you, uh, sorry, to, that you can teach how to cook. And I'm sure that they will make you something nice when they arrive. It's like, yeah, but we need the stuff now. And it, uh, the, 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 the image that really struck me was it felt quite like the Nightingale Hospitals. Because yeah, they, yeah, they made yeah. a big deal about we've done this thing which looks impressive and is a sort of PR stunt, but actually they were not ever used really because they didn't have the staff to use them. And that's sort of feels like what's going to happen here. Yeah, it was notable, I think, how well it went down that morning and how it sort of started to unravel as the actual people from the NHS and the experts and the doctors started talking to the media about what they thought of it. Um, it, it also sees a reliance on agencies 
cut by 10 billion over the course of the plan. That doesn't seem terribly conservative, does it? Does I, imagine, it? I imagine they'll find a way of spending it on management consultancy fees somewhere <laughs> else. That that money is going to go to a private company at some point in the process. But but I think, I mean, it makes sense to reduce the amount of money spent on agencies because often what they're doing is paying the same people who would be doing the job, but they have left the job because they can't cope with it. But yeah. They're coming back and doing it as an agency worker and getting paid several times more. And it feels like the NHS has this real problem with staff retention partly for all the financial reasons, but also partly because it's a very tough place to work. I've got friends who work, you know, as doctors in in various different parts of the country. And they just, it sounds like a nightmare working in the NHS sometimes, that there's no flexibility, you've got no way of knowing where you're going to be working two or three years hence. And, you know, if you want to take time off, it's very difficult, particularly if you are with someone who's also a doctor, you know, getting your schedules to match up is really hard. So if the NHS could find a way of being a better employer in terms of you know, all the benefits that people want, then that might work better. Rachel, nurses fell short of the numbers required for a fresh strike mandate. Um, But trains are due to be in disarray all this week as a result of train drivers simply saying no thank you to overtime. Uh, Does the government underestimate the extent to which all these services run on the goodwill of their staff? Uh, I don't think just, it's just the government. I think we all underestimate the extent to which the health service runs on goodwill. I was saying when Rishi Sunak was bringing in his anti-strikes legislation that was going to make it much harder for, for healthcare workers and other workers, but particularly in the NHS, to strike. Like You can pass all the laws you want saying you can't go on strike. You can't pass a law that says you, you have to be a nurse in the NHS. And a lot of people will choose, are choosing not to be. They're either choosing to be nurses in the private sector or they're going to Australia and America. Or like in terms of like doctors, they're just dropping out of medicine altogether and going off into other other careers, other professions and driving trucks very attractive <laughs> at the moment well, we're just, just going to have this rotation of sort of key workers going into different <laughs> different fields um but i think the the goodwill point is really important and we started the segment by saying that the nhs celebrates its 75th birthday no, no offense to, to to you or the <laughs> anyone who's been saying that but i find the personification of the nhs really unhelpful in these conversations because we talk about it like it's not just a person it's a deity and that's very very useful for uh politicians because then if stuff goes wrong on a sort of patient level it's well you can't criticize our beloved nhs but it's also very useful for them when it comes to staffing because when you are a nurse or a doctor or a midwife or whatever in, in the nhs and you're complaining because the working conditions are mad you're not being paid enough you are taking on sort of three people's work because the, the staffing levels are so are so abysmal and you say come on guys this is no way to run an organization it's like mm. oh but you you dedicated your life to the nhs isn't that a wonderful thing for you to do for you to sort of it's, it's, it's a service and it shouldn't be a service it should be a job like no one goes into medicine for the money alone but equally if you've got a kind of abusive relationship with your employer you're going to leave and people are leaving and the delusions that working in the NHS is enough of a privilege to keep people, I think is a is a real problem when it comes to trying to fix this stuff. I mean, I have to say the the, the truth is that it's meant to be a, a, it's meant to be a profession that 
you, in which you can feel very well, very good about what you're doing, but mm. that also pays extremely well. That's why it's every Greek mother's dream. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like a coincidence that everyone wants their child to be a doctor. It's meant to be both things, and somehow doctors have now become you know, people that we think should be doing this at a discount because they have some sort of Hippocratic duty. Um, Gavin, the key, according to the Welsh health minister, is a fitter population. Could a Tory party petrified of nanny state allegations ever mount a public health campaign to make the nation fitter? No. They can't, they, let, let me take one step back. I don't believe a single word of this this 15-year plan is going to be enacted in any way realistically beyond the 40 new hospitals that we were promised a few years ago, none of which have been built. There have no, been a few I mean, extensions. I'm with you. So I'm, I'm with just you starting with it's a degree like, of scepticism. Like someone plummeting to their death because they forgot to put on a parachute, yeah. joining the sort of the queue to get uh, 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 one of those musk cars whatever <laughs> that you need it, to wait like four years yeah, for yeah, it, it feels exactly. like that it's like what why are you even announcing this but, but the one thing this is the sound of one hand clapping the one thing i like about this proposal is talking about 15 years ahead what on earth should the mm, nhs mm. look like and it shouldn't be deified i mean i i i was very sick when i was three weeks old they saved my life so i think doctors and nurses are wonderful but they are not superhumans they need to eat they need to have homes. They need to be properly paid. And so there's there's two things I would, uh, uh, would say about this. One is the Marmot Review in 2010 looked at the nation's healthcare and said, since 1997 to 2010, we're doing a bit better. People are healthier. Marmot in what 2020. What period? <laughs> well, I can't 97, 97 to 2010, you say. And in 2020, Marmot went back and looked at what had changed. And what had changed was particularly working class women, but not just them, health care outcomes were worse. What happened between 2010 and 2020? Um, austerity. So you could do some things. I think the Welsh health minister is on to something. You could... Uh, there is a sugar tax, which some mm. people within the Conservative Party resisted. You can continue to think in terms of uh, taxing things that are unhealthy for us. You could also do, and this is the non-deification point, you could stop thinking that the NHS is something absolutely, uh, you know, that you can't fiddle with because that would be undermining the whole system. You could actually say, are we financing it the right way? Are we financing it from general taxation or should we do... Should we do it perhaps some other way? Now, I know this is not something that Labour are going to discuss openly for all the reasons that Rachel said, but we can at least think about it and think about it as a 15-year uh, struggle because it will be a struggle. Mm. What, this won't. This will do nothing. This isn't yeah, even a sticking point. won't exercise. Um, Sunak's other big idea, though, to give him credit, eh, to reduce NHS waiting list, is AI. Mm. Ooh. AI, or, um, or we could just die. Until I mean, if we I die, mean, that would until, certainly do Well, it. you know, every time they say we have eliminated those waiting for more than two years, I do think how many of them were actually eliminated while waiting. So uh, until recently, the NHS, I, I found, was the biggest importer of fax machines in the world. That's wonderful. And as yeah. recently as 2019, a lot of the system was running on Windows XP. So how credible is this 
you know, a few million to somehow integrate AI diagnostics. Well, I, I talked, I actually talked to somebody who's who was involved in this within the NHS or as an outside consultant. Mm. And he said to me that uh, the one bit of good news about coronavirus was it did kick the system to do more in two years than in the past 20 years he's been arguing about. It. So there is a will. But how you begin here? I mean, I was looking at who else has got a fax machine. I saw a picture of Vladimir Putin sitting <laughs> with one. So, I mean, which I presume All is that a to Soviet be fair, it was at the end of a very long day. Yeah. My mum my still has a fax machine. <laughs> Your mum, Vladimir Putin, and the, <laughs> and the NHS. That is quite a threesome. <laughs> Matt, I had a massive ding-dong last week with Peter Hitchens, you, you may have seen. Um, he thinks it is immoral for doctors to strike, but government has taken advantage of precisely that vocational st- status to effectively extract a rent, like pay them below market rate. Do we need the equivalent of like an armed forces covenant to, so that these disputes don't happen, these strikes don't happen, but there is a clear contract in place that in exchange for you never going down that route, we're not going to take advantage of you. That would be great. Although, unfortunately, the Armed Forces Covenant doesn't seem a to be working very suspicious well, yes. comparison. Yeah, because the state of Armed Forces housing is very bad. And um, I think lots of people in the Armed Forces would say, no, we need our own covenant improved. Mm. Um, I, I think for me, um, sort of personally, it always feels like a sort of a more serious version of what I see in the arts all the time is people being exploited because they're doing something that doesn't, immediately make a profit and it's something that they kind of want to do because there's something inside them uh, as though the work is a reward in itself and that feels like that's being i mean in the arts you can sometimes go well fair enough you know yeah nobody needs another artist although you know perhaps we do um but we do need doctors to to um to want to do it as well as be paid properly for it and we also never ask that of of other professions I, i sort of feel like what we should do is go through linkedin and tell everyone who says in their statement that they find their job rewarding that they should therefore get a pay cut and see how that goes down. Because mm. that's what's being said to the doctors, basically, is, well, your job is rewarding, so that should be a reward in itself. And that's just not, that's not true. Rachel, you said before about this deification of the system. Is that the biggest obstacle, really, to the big rethink that the NHS needs? I think the biggest obstacle is money, shortly followed by the fact that any structural change is going to take a long time. And so the Mm. government that starts it off is not going to be the government that gets the credit for it. And I think that's a a major barrier with social care as well. We're just political cycles, electoral cycles of four or five years aren't cut out to solve these kind of big Mm. long term problems. Um, But yes, I think protectiveness over the NHS as a concept is a barrier. And I think... You know what what Gavin was saying about you know the NHS saved your life when you were three weeks old. Everyone's got a story of uh, the NHS saving their life or saving the life of somebody very close to them. But I mean, was it the NHS that did that? If they'd been born, okay, maybe not in America, but in sort of most of Western Europe and had had a condition like that, they would have gone to a hospital that was funded with the social insurance system, and they hopefully the standard of doctors was the same. A lot of countries have better outcomes than us. Would have been treated and would have survived. So the idea that it was the concept of the NHS rather than the individuals working very hard within that system, I think that way of looking at it sort of stops us from having an honest conversation. And we've got some really big structural problems 
coming up that none of the parties want to think about, the main one of which is the fact that the population is ageing, which is a really good thing. Life expectancy is going up. But after a certain point, if you think about all the comorbidities that people get when they're older, every year that somebody lives past a certain age, they're going to cost the NHS more. And we don't want to have a conversation about that. And we don't want to have a conversation about how we fund tax revenue from different generations to, to make that work. And of course we don't want to because it's a horrible thing to think about. And so instead, especially if, you'd, if you're against immigration. It's like yeah. that, that there is a mathematical equation there that doesn't, that doesn't really work. Either so, you have to import labour or or you have to accept much higher taxes or you have to go and have loads of babies and actually fund that but you can't properly. but you can't go and have loads of babies and i say this as a woman who would quite like to have a baby because the tax rates and the housing costs and the childcare costs are so high that well, that's it's why, not that's why it's not feasible it i probably. could i could be pregnant right now with a future doctor for the nhs <laughs> and i'm not because of the housing crisis well the 40 hospitals will be built in time <laughs> for it but i i agree with almost everything you said there the the, the, the german system i've german doctors in my family and i've asked them when do you have a winter beds crisis? You have German doctors. In yes. Canada, do you? And they look at me and go, <laughs> we don't have a winter beds crisis. Why don't you have a winter beds crisis in Hamburg? Because we have more beds. Mm. End of story. So yeah. uh, it is about money. Fundamentally, it's about money. G- Gavin, on a side note, this massive policy, as is the Nouvelle Vague, was announced to the media rather than the commons, where it can be scrutinised. So we have to rely on journalists doing their job. For a year, every time West Streeting uttered the phrase NHS long-term staffing plan, the first question he, he got was, how will you pay for this? When Sunak announced it, not a single journalist in the room asked where the money's coming from. And as far as I can see, no one has still asked that question. Why are the standards expected of opposition so different to what's expected of government? Well, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Obviously. I mean, mean, the only answer I can give is that I don't think Sunak will be the man who's going to have to pay for a 15-year plan because I suspect he may not have 15 years in office. So it may be something something for Labour. But I'm not not justifying it as a backhanded compliment to Wes. Maybe there's something to that, that they sort of see the way the wind's blowing. And when the government announces a 15-year plan, they go there, there. And when <laughs> Labour announces it, they're actually they, interested in the interested, detail yes. because they might have to deliver it. But then, but then we end up with a situation where Labour might therefore lose votes because mm. they're being questioned on something that they can't do yet. It's this bizarre, yeah. bizarre world. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for escape routes. Which safe, soft bosom of culture are we falling into this week to distract from the horrors of the outside world? Gavin. I'm afraid my cultural life has been jumping in the sea. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have told me, go jump in the sea, and I have been jumping in the sea. So, uh, it, is, that, is, that, is that cultural in a biological sense? <laughs> <laughs> I think it may be. It may be. I may need the NHS to sort, <laughs> sort that out. And I have. I've been, I've been, it's, the weather's been fantastic. Kent, Costa del Kent is <laughs> remarkably I have good. to say, you look disgustingly <laughs> tanned. Um, Rachel, how about you? 
I saw Pulp at the weekend, oh. and I it's, it's one of the it best. Was a, it was, it was amazing. Be amazing right? It was amazing. Um, the entire atmosphere was incredible. Jarvis Cocker has not changed at all since he last played there twenty five years ago, um, and I have just been listening to Pulp songs, which was the the teenage anthems that I was obsessed with as an adolescent, kind of on a loop since. Mm. Saturday, and you know what? They've really been helping, yeah. uh, helping, helping channel my inner despair at the world. How about you, Matt? Well, obviously, apart from the cricket, as I've already talked about, um, I read a really a brilliant book recently called Yellow Face by Rebecca F. Quang, which is a sort of fascinating, sort of satire, very zeitgeisty book about the publishing industry. Essentially, um, a lot of stuff about racism, cultural appropriation, social media. It's got the best description of what it would be like to be sort of the the eye of a storm, a sort of Twitter storm. Oh, right. Um, it's very, very up to date, feels very sort of now, um, all wrapped up in a kind of a thriller about basically a young writer who essentially steals a manuscript for a book from her friend who's a very successful writer um, who's died in a sort of freak accident. And it becomes a sort of book about how to cope with the guilt of that and how, because um, she's a, her friend is an Asian writer and she's white. It's uh, by Rebecca F. Quang, and no. I, I would recommend it. Bookshops, Amazon, whatever. Everywhere, yeah. Right, okay. I uh, have started re-watching The Good Fight. <gasps> oh, it's so good. Because he hadn't seen it. I used to absolutely love The Good Wife. I think Robert and Michelle King are geniuses. Um, and um, I've gone back to The Good Good Fight, and it begins with Trump being inaugurated, and that just that shock rippling through the liberal establishment in mm. America. And I have to say, with the benefit of distance from that, it is even better. And it's now free on Amazon Prime. So if you have an Amazon Prime membership, you can watch it for free. And I would highly recommend it. No, they didn't mean to. That wasn't going to be the beginning. That's what's so fascinating. About oh, really? That. Yeah, because they shot, they, they came up with that idea of her having to come back to the office because of the, the Madoff yeah, yeah. scandal type thing. But, they, but then... But they shot it thinking Hillary was winning, so they shot the whole scene with her say with her going brilliant. Hillary's won. I can oh, retire. That's fantastic. And then they had to at the last minute change it to <laughs> oh no, Trump's won. I have to retire. And uh, yeah, and it, it and obviously then the series went on from there. But I think that's fascinating. Glorious. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks to Gavin Esther. Thank you very much. To Rachel Conley. Thank you. And Matt Green. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Gavin Esler, Rachel Cunliffe and Matt Green. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 